We have uh, two, three, two announcements. The first relates to the uh, funeral this coming weekend for Matt Williamson, John and Sarah Williamson's uh, father, and that will be held at the Cypress Fairbanks Funeral Home on Jones Road on Saturday, June the 12th. He, um, Matt attended the Cypress Bible Church. I know the pastor. I just cannot remember his name. I've met him several times. But he will be officiating. Uh, the visitation is going to be Friday evening, uh, June 11th from 5 until 8 p.m. And then just a reminder for the men, this is for, you know, bring your, if your boys are old enough to really sit and understand what's going on, then, um, then bring them. I think it's good for, to uh, have these young, young men who are probably around 10 or 11 years of age and older come and associate, learn how adult Christian men uh, fellowship together and focus on the word and to see that priority. We have been, we started in January, we had bumps and grinds, so we have had a hard time getting going this year, but uh, we're studying through uh, Francis Schaeffer's book on how should we then live, which takes us through the cycles of Western civilization from the close of the New Testament up to the present. There's a series of videos, and we're watching those. And uh, this is it's a good uh, tool to understand how the thought systems that are antagonistic to Christianity have reshaped Western civilization. So uh, it's a good uh, good focal point to have some some good discussion. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, take time to make sure we're spiritually prepared to get into the word and to study and to come to understand uh, the implications of what is said in the passage we're going to look at uh, for civilization, and it has direct application uh, to what's going on in America today. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have the light of your word to shine into our souls, to enable us to see truth, to understand truth, and see the eternal truths that are laid down in Scripture, to understand reality as it is, as your creation, 
as a creation that was created perfect but has been corrupted by human negative volition and sin. And Father, we pray that you might help us to understand why it is so very important for us to serve you and to focus upon you and not to let our minds be filled with the garbage from the culture around us, helping us to understand how to evaluate the culture around us and, in fact, any human culture, because all human culture is built on the platform of rebellion against you. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the hope that we have of the gospel, for the fact that we are saved eternally and can focus on an eternal uh, reality with you in heaven. And, Father, we look forward to that. Thank you for this time together this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're going to start by opening our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 14 and following just as a follow-up to something I closed with last week and um, had at least one question about. But what we're looking at this evening in the terms of the title I gave for the lesson is the devastating consequences of forgetting God. This is found in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And as we get into our study, we're shifting gears because we have studied the first section of the book. Chapter 1-1 down through 3-6 is the introduction where uh, we get a summary of how Israel goes through spiritual failure, how they go from being a spiritually focused culture spiritually focused, victorious generation under Joshua conquering the Canaanites to within a generation once the elders, Joshua and the elders have all died, then the uh, next generation that comes up has lost its vision for uh, what God has given them, has lost an understanding of the revelation of God, have chosen to abandon God and to forget him. And we see the consequences of that summarized in the first chapter. They go from victory to defeat by the end, and Dan, the tribe of Dan, can't even conquer its own territory. In chapter 2, then we got the summary of the spiritual um, editorial about what was happening because they had abandoned God And so it introduces us to the fact that the cycles of discipline announced in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14 and following, are going to be illustrated in the history of Israel for the next three to four hundred years. The second chapter illustrates this failure uh, among the leadership as they become paganized. They become to act like the Canaanites around them, and there is a... uh, a um, particular order in the way that these these judges are listed. They are generally in chronological order, but they overlap. And uh, the reason they overlap is some are with one tribe, others with another tribe, and some of them are judging in a more regional way than others are, so they're uh, contemporaries in some cases, overlapping in, in others, And so this is uh, the progression, though, is from Othniel, who's the best, about whom nothing negative is said, all the way down to Samson, the worst, about whom nothing positive is said. 
And then we get into the third section, which has to do with two or three episodes dealing with the paganization of the priesthood and then the paganization of the people. Now, those two episodes, their appendices, they take place within the chronological framework of the of these various uh, judges. And so it's it's not written where you read through it from beginning to end and one chapter follows the ne- the other one or the previous one um, chronologically. So it's designed to teach. It is extremely pedagogical. It is designed to u- show history. It is divine the divinely editorialized view of Israel's history in order to communicate uh, significant eternal truths. Now, one thing I pointed out last time is we were looking at verse 6, the last verse in the introduction, which reads, And they took their daughters to be their wives, that is, the daughters of the Canaanite, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they um, gave their, da- their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. The last statement is a result of what happens from the intermarriage. And I was making some various uh, applications of that and of Second Corinthians six fourteen through eighteen. And I got the question: Well, wh- why can't? Why is it not good for Christians, especially in the context adult Christians who are mature, having friends uh, who are who are unbelievers? And so I wanted to clarify this. Uh, and so I, to do so, I wanted to go to the context where Paul says, "Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers." Now the image that he's creating there is where you have two oxen that are yoked together so that they can pull together, work together as a team going in the right direction. So as such, it is a good illustration of of what the Bible talks about in terms of fellowship. And that if uh, you were to uh, connect together, let's say a donkey and, uh, and an ox, or something like that, where they're unequally yoked, then one does all the work because they're not equally yoked. They're not able to accomplish what they should accomplish, and it just makes the whole, uh, um, all of the work somewhat difficult. So that's that's the picture there. So the picture there is when people are intimately connected, where their actions and their um, beliefs influence directly influence the other one. And so they are tied together in a very intimate way. And a lot of times when it, as we are growing up, as I use the illustration with the way uh, my mother uh, trained me, uh, that's important for kids because kids are easily susceptible to peer pressure and to the uh, values of other kids that they are around and that they play with and that sort of thing. But when you get older, a lot of times we develop uh, good friendships with maybe co-workers or with others uh, with whom we are involved. But it's not to the level of this, uh, what is described by being yoked together. And, um, and so that doesn't mean you can't have friends. I have many friends who are unbelievers. 
There was a time when I did not. I remember a silly assignment. I still think it's silly. And it's because it's artificial. And an evangelism course in seminary where we were required to give the gospel to um, at minimum of three unbelievers over the course of the course, which was three weeks. When you're in seminary, you're not quite a monk, but you don't really have, unless you're out in the, you know, working or something like that, where you're rubbing shoulders with people who are not seminary people, you, you tend to be really isolated. And they had talked about that in class and said, you need to develop friendships with people who are unbelievers. Well, you can't do that in three weeks, okay? That's just as artificial as it can be. And and for many, many men, myself included, I ended up coming down to like the night before the end of the course and just cold calling a bunch of people uh, in a mall to give them the four spiritual laws or whatever track we were using just to meet the assignment. That is not the way you witness at all. And that's why I always thought that was a, a, a silly, silly assignment. But as we get older, we will develop some friendships with unbelievers and we hope that we will be able to be used by God to lead them to the Lord. But we're not in the kind of intimate relationships with them usually where they are influencing our values and our thinking and that sort of thing. That's where you draw the line. You don't get into that kind of a, of an intimate relationship. So the passage goes on where Paul says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And so we have to be careful that the people, now some of my unbelieving friends are, are the long way from being antinomian. So, but you, there you get around kids, teenagers in college, you get people who are, you know, they don't have any solid beliefs and they don't have any solid morals or values. And so you don't want to become um, intimate with them in a close friendship because they will influence you. And these are the illustrations that, that Paul gives. What accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And I think it's just up to each individual to decide how far they're going to go with that. I remember sitting around with uh, some spiritually mature older men who were in business and we were knocking this around about, well, how far does this go when you're involved in business partnerships and financial partnerships? And I think each person has to decide uh, where, where to apply that in, in their own life. And so Paul goes on to say, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Now, I, those verses where you have the phrases italicized, those are quotes from the Old Testament, and in their original context, they're talking about Israel. But they are applied to the church. And in Israel, we see an example of those that did not have any... Uh, they, they just decided everything in the culture was just fine, and they just jumped in as and swam around in it as much as they could, and it destroyed 
the spiritual life. So what God is doing in this in <clears throat> this passage and as well as in the Old Testament is showing how intermarrying with unbelievers uh, will destroy the people of God, and that when they begin to coexist with their enemies and quit thinking of them as enemies, then they begin to justify them, justify their values, justify their thinking, and the next step is to begin to affirm it and to even approve it. And we see that happening a lot. We see believers who have in the past, maybe decades ago, had a fairly decent testimony of their faith in Christ as their Savior, but they have been so influenced by the thinking of the world that now they have gradually bought into presuppositions of postmodernism, and now we're in a culture where the popular thing is, especially in business, we don't want to offend anybody, so they never want to say anything that might offend anybody, so that whenever something comes up where they might be attacked in social media or uh, their reputation might be assaulted, people might demonstrate, as we have seen that they have done with Antifa and Black Lives Matters and other groups in the last year, uh, people are so to avoid the negative publicity and the possibility that, that uh, something worse might happen, the loss of clients, the loss of business, then they start affirming the values of these organizations and they just choose to forget the fact that, for example, uh, Black Lives Matter was founded by uh, two women, three women, uh, one, a third one came along later, who... Uh, had been trained as Marxist organizers, and so they don't know really what Marxism is in many cases, and so they say, well, that's not really important. Uh, we just think it's important to to validate uh, black black people in a difficult time, and there's nothing wrong with that, but Black Lives Matters and this and is built on something called critical race theory. You have to understand all of these things. It's not what we what many people think it is. People get on the social justice bandwagon, and um, it's not what most people think it is. They think that just means we want uh, some sort of equal treatment for everybody, but that's not what it's about. It is about not giving everyone equal opportunity, but guaranteeing equity in the results and the consequences. And to do that, you have to destroy personal responsibility and individual volition. And so they, they, they get sucked into these kinds of things, and it happens to every single culture that has uh, arisen in the history of the human race because they're all doomed to failure because of... Because of sin. And so this kind of thing where you start approving the values of those who seek to destroy you uh, is, is typical. What's going on today, as I pointed out several times, is we have three major human viewpoint worldviews that are uh, present in our culture. We have those who are given to totally to modernism, that is, where rationalism and empiricism reign supreme, and they 
they are in authority over everything, including any religion, including the Bible. Everything is determined by human rationality and uh, their human intellect. And the reality is that that system was understood to not provide the kind of answers that people were looking for, valued in life, or real hope for culture and society by the end of the 19th century. And so the avant-garde began to move in a different direction. They rejected modernism as a path to the answer to life's questions, and they replaced it with postmodernism, which was a rejection of any absolutes. Modernism at least held to the to absolutes. They might be wrong, but they held that the reality and necessity of absolutes. Postmodernism rejected all absolutes, and everybody can just do whatever they want to do. That's really what is happening in the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And by the early 70s, postmodernism was giving birth to the next worldview, which has come to be called critical social justice. And critical social justice pulls together uh, the, a lot of the values from postmodernism. But one of the things that you had was um, uh, the importance of cultural diversity. Remember all the talk about cult- the importance of cultural diversity in, uh, back in the 90s, that all cultures are equal. It doesn't matter whether it's a black culture in Africa, whether it's a primitive Stone Age culture in Irian Jaya that believes it's, uh, it's important to be able to deceive someone to the point of costing them their life, or whether it is a uh, demonic cult in, the, in, in America that takes all the followers down to South America and has them all drink uh, poisonous uh, Kool-Aid. All cultures are equal, and they're all equally good. But in critical social justice, whites are not basically good. If you are white, by definition, you are a racist. And this is the one now, think it's a religion. And this is the original sin, and the unforgivable sin is to be a racist. And to be a racist is to disagree with the worldview of the so-called oppressed classes. So it doesn't matter what evidence you have to support your, your beliefs or your view. If you are white, by definition, you are a racist because you disagree with their interpretation of the world and their interpretation uh, of history. And so now... Uh, that's the unforgivable sin, is to be white. And there's not any forgiveness for it. There's no uh, way to do penance or confess sin. All, it's all about uh, guilt and bitterness and reparations. And it all comes out of that. And it's a rejection of, of, uh, of history and the truth of history. So this is a major problem that we that we run into today, but it's not anything new. Now, last week, I looked at verse 5 of chapter 3. We talked about these various uh, people that were, this is really external enemies for the most part, to Israel. Uh, The others that come along uh, that that we see in the book really are, are a lot of internal enemies. They're not listed here. Uh, the I did not talk much about uh, the Hittites, 
But the Hittites were an Indo-European people who moved into the ancient Middle East in the area of modern Turkey in the basically from about the 1700s BC to about the uh, 1200s. So that is before the Exodus, all the way through to the time in the, somewhat in the middle of the period of the Judges, which roughly goes from about 1360 until about um, 1100 or 1050. Uh, because it overlaps. Samuel's the last of the judges, and uh, so you have that. That's the general period. And the Hittites uh, developed their their, uh, empire at that particular time, and their their cities were in central Turkey, and they were relatively unknown from biblical times up until 1927, and I always laugh at this because this is your classic, classic, a paradigm for dealing with uh, the critics of Scripture. All of the liberals in the 19th century used to love to point to the Hittites as a people that never existed. Oh, they're just made up. We never heard of them. They're not mentioned in any other literature. Nobody ever heard of them before. This is just made up out of thin air and put into the Bible. And then in 1927, at the, Canaan, at the Hittite city of Bogazkoi, they discovered a huge Hittite city and libraries and palaces and everything. And all of a sudden now, uh, the liberals had egg on their face because they don't believe the Bible can be historically accurate. They reject the truthfulness of the Bible from the presuppositionally. So whatever the Bible says is suspect in their, uh, in their, in their thinking. And uh, we discovered a lot of things about the Hittites. And in this particular period of the judges, a lot of Hittites had migrated down into the area of, uh, of Canaan. And you have others later in history, like Bathsheba's husband is a, uh, one of David's mighty men, and he's described as Uriah the Hittite. And the Hittites contributed a lot to uh, Middle Eastern, ancient Near Eastern civilization during the three or four hundred years of their heyday. But after they were defeated, they just sort of disappeared uh, into the sands of time. But one of the uh, things that, uh, that they uh, provided was they, they, in their dominant period, which is the period in which the scripture is is written is that they had a way of of writing treaties and contracts and it's the same kind of thing that we have today if you go somewhere and you're digging around in a file and you find a real estate contract you can date that pretty easily to a specific time just by the way it is written the format that is used cuz these things change and adapt uh, over, over time. And now this is important because the, to understand the contribution here of what is called the suzerain-vassal treaty form. A suzerain is a ruler, a great king, and then the vassal is uh, the subordinate power. So we might uh, uh, refer to them as some sort of satellite nation or 
a client nation, something like that, to the to the great em- emperor who would be uh, the suzerain. And and that's imp- it's important to understand because that structure of this treaty was completely unknown within about. 300 years, two or 300 years of the collapse of the Hittite civilization. Now that's important because when you when liberals come along, they want to date Moses and they want to date uh, the, the Exodus to the 1200s, to the 13th century. By then, the Hittites are just about gone. But Moses wrote the Pentateuch within a culturally known. Uh, format of that time, this suzerain vassal uh, treaty form. And uh, it's just like when Paul comes along in the first century, he doesn't write his epistles according to the format and structure of a fifth century BC letter. He writes it in the typical way in which letters were written in the first century. And so what this does is it gives us evidence that Moses wrote uh, in a could not have written this. He would not have even known to structure it this way in a uh, 12th century environment. And so this just gives us some support for understanding um, that it was written in the time that the Bible claims it was written, which is which is um, late 15th century B.C. But I want to go over this just a minute. It's It's kind of interesting. We spent three lectures on this in my first semester of Old Testament uh, introduction because it's referenced everywhere. If you read anything in the Old Testament, there are references made to this. And so it's important to be conversant with the, the basic framework. This isn't saying anything about inerrancy or infallibility other than God apparently used structural formats such as the way Psalms are written, the way Proverbs are written. These were, these were standard, um, standard in, their, in their time frame. But um, we all know that the first covenant was made by God with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. All human contracts, all human covenants came after that. He sets the precedent and then all covenants that came along after that are structured on that. So the priority is always given uh, in, a, in a biblical approach to the fact that, that human covenants and treaties are copied on the model of a, of a prior divine contract. So these uh, treaties were mid-2nd century millennium B.C. They had a historical prelude for example, this would in Deuteronomy, this is the first five chapters. It talks about what God, Moses starts off in five chapters talking about the history of God's involvement, the calling of Abraham, and God's oversight of the history of, of Israel. Uh, in a typical uh, contract of this nature, what is happening is, let's say, you have a, uh, a king and he has conquered a uh, regional power. And now he enters into this contract and he says, because I'm go- I have done these things for you, now this is what's required of you. You need to do these things for me. And so the next part get- outlines what those stipulations are. And so these are general stipulations in chapters 5 through chapter 11. And then you get into specific stipulations and commands in Deuteronomy chapter 12 to 26. 
But see, the great king doesn't just give his client nation protection for nothing. He expects something, and if he doesn't get it, there will be consequences. And so the fifth part of a suzerain vassal treaty is that he would, they would outline the blessings, that if you're obedient and you are helpful, I will do these things for you, and that would be followed by the fact that if you don't, then I will, I will bring judgment upon you, and you'll get this kind of punishment. That's 2868. So this is, the, this is a, a commonly understood framework for, for Deuteronomy, and then at the end of the document, there would be the witnesses that were called upon to witness the signing of this document, which is what we have in Deuteronomy uh, 30 and 31 and 32, where, God, where Moses calls upon heaven and earth to uh, witness, witness this uh, covenant with the Jewish people. Now, I'll come back to this in just a minute, which is why I wanted to state this up front. So now we come to Judges chapter 3, verse 7, which is the introductory verse to the section that is sometimes referred to as um, as the narrative of the deliverers or the judges. And it involves six judges, major judges, that are, uh, that are described, and several what are called minor judges. They're only minor because not very much is said about them. And they are people like uh, Shamgar, which we'll run into in a couple of weeks. And then uh, there's later on we have Tola and Jair and a couple of others. And not much is said about them. But this is the introduction to this section. So it reads, And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So we just start off here looking at that first phrase, and the sons of Israel. This is referring to the covenant people of God. They are under uh, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And then it says that they did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord. This is a repetition from what was said earlier in Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then verse 12 says, And they forsook or abandoned the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, what's important here is to recognize what evil means. We use evil to mean all kinds of different bad things. But in the Bible, you frequently find the word evil in an evaluation statement being followed by idolatry. Again and again and again in the book of in First Kings and Second Kings, you will read that so and so, one of the kings, did evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals or the Asherah, or did not cut down the Asherah. So that sort of brings us to an understanding of what in the world this is met uh, by Asherah. And what is meant by the Asherah, it's two, two Asherah wrote the O T H is a 
uh, a plural ending, so it's really the Baals and the Asherahs, uh, if we were to anglicize the whole thing, or Baalim and the Asherot. And Asherah referred in many cases to a pole that was central to the worship. And you find that in Judges chapter 6, when we get to Gideon, that uh, Gideon's father has a has an altar to Baal, and he has an Asherah, which is a pole, because Gideon's going to get up in the middle of the night to go chop it down. But Asherah relates to the goddess that that pole represents. So what they're doing is they're not just worshiping Baal and a pole, they're worshiping Baal and Asherah, these false gods, actually, according to Deuteronomy uh, 24, they are demons that are behind all of these gods and goddesses. And there's a demon behind every god and god and goddess in mythology. And I read to you that quote from Milton's Paradise Lost, where he was biblically astute enough to name uh, the fallen angels, the ones who fell with Lucifer, with the names of all these false gods and goddesses from not only the Middle East, but Norse mythology and Greek and Roman mythology and everything else, recognizing that these are not just some made-up names and made-up uh, ideas, but that it that it's originates in the thought of Satan and the demons. And so it is demonism itself to be involved with any kind of false uh, god or 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 goddess. So we get into this particular passage and what's happening here is it says that they forgot the Lord. Now this word for forgot is the Hebrew word shakach, which means to forget or to ignore, to not take into account something. So they're not just, it's just not a lapse of memory like, oops, I forgot God today. I just sort of slept through the morning, didn't go to church. I just forgot. It, that's not what we're talking about here. It, it's much stronger than that. That's It's not just this sort of uh, momentary uh, forgetfulness or temporary ag- ag- amnesia where you just can't find your car keys, you don't know where your wallet is or something like that. It is an intentional uh, uh, ignoring, uh, intentionally disregarding or disdaining or rejecting God. It is something that is volitional. And uh, we must understand it within the framework of what is said in Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2, verse 7, we read, So the people, that is the people of Joshua's generation, served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now, what that verse is telling us is that they witnessed history. They witnessed, they had empirical observation of God's intervention in, uh, in their history where God performed miracles during the uh, ten plagues, miracles during the escape through the Red Sea, miracles in the wilderness. They knew what their history was. They had lived through it. They were witnesses to it. 
And then the next generation comes and they forsake God. They abandon God, the God of their fathers. And he's identified as the one who acted in history. He is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so they rejected history. That's what this is saying. They've rejected the history that their forefathers have have told them about that they witness. And so they are abandoning God, and they are disregarding everything that God did in the past. This is a direct assault on the idea of history. History was in, invented, so to speak, by God. It was, he was invented. It was invented. The first real history we have is the Pentateuch. You will go to one uh, secular school after another, and they will tell you that Herodotus and Thucydides uh, originated history, but they're a thousand years later. Moses is giving us history around 1400 B.C., and it is divine revelation. So it is God explaining the key events that are important. That's that's so uh, critical to understand when we read the Old Testament. And I made this point back when we uh, went through Genesis. Genesis starts with the creation of the earth. It's roughly 4,000, 4,500 B.C., and it goes up to about 300 B.C. There's a lot of things that happened in the world in that period. There were a lot of people that lived. There were a lot of people who did great things. If you just take the roughly 1,800 to 2,000 years before the flood, there were some great people that lived at that time, men who were of mighty men of renown, Genesis 6 says about them. Who were they? Well, we don't know their names. We know that there's some legends like Hercules and others that were half God and half man and were probably legends built off of the idea of the Nephilim, but we don't know anything. There were probably as many as three or four billion people on the planet at the time of the flood. We don't know the names of any of them except for uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth and Noah. We don't even know the names of their wives. Why didn't God tell us about them? I bet there are some fascinating stories. And then we go through the next uh, roughly five or six hundred years till you get to Noah, I mean, excuse me, Abraham. And the only person we know outside of the Jewish lineage is Job and, uh, and his friends. We don't know about anybody else. Why did God pick those people and those events in their lives. He didn't tell us everything. He didn't even go back and say, well, this is how Abraham heard the gospel, and this is why he believed. We don't know anything about that. We just know that at some time prior to Genesis 12, he had understood that God would provide salvation for sin, and he believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But God doesn't tell us anything any more than that. And we can, I could go on and on all through the history of the ancient world and God doesn't mention anything that uh, Alexander did. Uh, he doesn't mention any of the other uh, great men whose names have come down to us through history, through maybe the survival of one work or two works, and that's it. People criticize the Bible, and we've got uh, thousands of manuscripts of, of the Bible from the time of the first century of the New Testament, and yet... Uh, 
Caesar's works, which were written just a hundred years before his Gallic Wars, I think there's only one. Uh, the the only copy we have is from a thousand years later, and that we don't have any before that. So it's the copy we do have dates back to I think it's around seven or eight hundred. But the Bible has all kinds of ancient ancient manuscripts. But why is it God chose these events and ignored all of the others? And that's part of what we address when we get into this uh, understanding these people, these leaders. Uh, during the time of the judges. So Judges 3.7 says that the people, uh, the people forgot God, and Judges 2.12 tells us in stronger language that they abandoned God. And outside of that verb, everything else in the, in the statement is pretty much the same. And so what that that tells us is that the statement that they forgot God is roughly synonymous to abandoning God. It was an intentional uh, reaction against God to, uh, to leave God and to uh, ignore him in their lives and to completely disregard everything that he had done. Uh, forgetting vo- God involves ignoring or forgetting the demands in the covenant that God made with them, with the Mosaic covenant. It uh, reflects a complete ingratitude for all that God had done for them in the past, and it reflects a hubris and an arrogance of self-sufficiency that is very similar to the culture we uh, we live in today. And in fact, God had warned them several times in Deuteronomy, do not forget what I have done. And so now they are forgetting exactly uh, what God had done. Uh, and here we have, I want to talk a little bit about the consequences of this. What happened? Well, first of all, it's an act of negative volition, as I stated a minute ago. It's a willful, intentional forgetting of the past, of what God had done in the past, that God intervened in history, and it's a a choosing, a selection of Baal and Asherah as the gods that they were going to worship. These are creation gods. By that I mean, you know, some would, I don't like to use the word nature. I like to use the word creation. They are the gods of, that, that, are, that represented forces of nature, forces of God's creation that had become uh, deified. And so the creator God is the suzerain over all the earth, He's entered into covenant with Israel, and Israel is now rejecting him. Now, under the framework of a suzerain-vassal treaty, how do you think the suzerain reacts when the client nation rebels against him? He comes down extremely hard on them. That's those sections at the end that are describing the cycles of discipline. If you look at Leviticus 26, it gives us the the blessing promises in the first 13 verses. And when you look at the, uh, in, in Leviticus 26, and you look at the, uh, the curses, the judgments that start in verse 14, and they go all the way down from 14 to 46, that's a lot of negative consequences. 
13 verses for the positives and uh, roughly 32 or 33 verses for the negatives. That's a lot. And that's what we see playing out that's going to play out in this history of Israel. The second point is, expands on that, that this is viewed as an act of treason against the suzerain and is punishable by these extreme measures that just fall short of totally annihilating uh, the people. Now, let's think about what it means to abandon God and to forget history, because that's what this is. In order to do this, let's think about it psychologically. You have to ignore history completely, ignore objectivity, and you have to let yourself go into a state of complete self-deception and delusion about history. You have to go to the next step of completely rewriting history. Remember what, what Aaron said when he's at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses has been up there for a long time, almost 40 days, and the people are getting restless, and so they convince Aaron that he needs to build a golden calf. And so Aaron finally uh, yields to the pressure. And what did he say when he presented the golden calf? This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's historical revisionism. You know, fast forward from that to after Solomon dies and the kingdom is split from north and south, and you have the uh, ten tribes in the north, two in the south, and uh, Jeroboam is the new king in the northern kingdom of Israel. What was one of the first things he did? He had a golden calf built to put in a temple in, in Bethel and a second one to go into the uh, sanctuary at Dan. And as a matter of fact, what we'll learn later in the book is that after the tribe of Dan goes up there and conquers Laish and establishes their control over the area and they bring with them this priest that actually is the grandson of Moses, and he's the one who is the priest of his own little cult, and he's got that golden calf there, that when David comes along, and you've got David and Solomon, and Dan is never mentioned again. But guess what? They're there the whole time because that sanctuary with the golden calf is active until the northern kingdom is taken out in 722. It was active all through that time period. They never completely abandoned that. And what did Jeroboam say about it? This is the God who took you out of Egypt. That's historical revisionism. It's a complete denial of, of reality and living in, uh, in a delusion. So a culture that is going to have freedom, that is going to have true personal liberty, is a culture that must have a strong historical awareness if you go back to the founding fathers of this nation, these were men who were steeped in the history of Western civilization. They, they were well familiar with the writings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the political theories that were set forth in Greece and in Rome and all of the writings about government and politics since the beginning of the Enlightenment in the early 1600s. They were well read in the Bible. The most frequently quoted source 
in their writings, in their preaching, in their uh, in their speeches, in their letters, and in their diaries are quotes from the Bible. Almost twice, number two, which was John Locke, and a lot of what John Locke was quoted as saying were based on the Bible because he was reared in a Puritan home. And so these men understood history, and they understood that history reflects the depravity of man and the corruption of sin, and that you can't put too much power in the hands of too few because power uh, corrupts absolutely. So when history is ignored, freedom will be destroyed. Liberal theology came around, came around in that same time period, in the mid 18th century, the mid-1700s, a little bit before that, but primarily there. And the first thing they began to do was attack the historical reliability of the first 11 chapters of the Bible. If you cut out the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the rest of it is meaningless and irrelevant if chapters 1 through 11 are not historically accurate. And they understood that. Adam and Eve must be historical. Noah must be historical. The worldwide flood must be historical. The uh, Tower of Babel must be historical. All of those things must have happened the way they did because all of the prophets and the uh, and Jesus and Paul refer back to events in and build their theology on the historicity of those events in the first eleven chapters. So you can't think of them as legend or myth, which is exactly what uh, the liberal theologians uh, wanted everyone to do. So as a result of that, they destroy history, and they have to replace it with something. What happens when you destroy the objective historicity of Christianity is it, it, it's no longer a historical objective religion, So now it becomes a psychologized religion, which is exactly what's happened in the last 40 or 50 years. One of the greatest enemies of Christianity was Sigmund Freud. He hated, despised Judeo-Christian worldview and and biblical Christianity. And as a result of of the subjectivism of the last 75 years, what we see is Christianity is reduced to just an internal psychological religion and conversion is just something uh, that basically is designed to make you feel better and if you invite Jesus into your heart, then he will solve all your problems. And that is not how the Bible presents the gospel at all. And so and it's all about giving you a happy and meaningful life. That was the title of a tract written for Dallas Seminary back in the mid-70s. And the gospel is not about how to have a happy and meaningful life. It is if you understand those terms biblically, but when you say that to an unbeliever with no divine viewpoint, no biblical framework, he has a totally subjectivized, psychological, uh, psychologized way of interpreting something like that. Um, so when you destroy the historical accuracy of the Bible, then the Jesus that is presented is not the Jesus of the Bible. The salvation that is presented is not the salvation of the Bible, and the future that is presented is not the future that the Bible um, presents. 
because the Bible is based on, it's the only religion that's based on his history, actual historical events. And what the Bible teaches us is that you cannot ignore or reject history because if you do, it, it will destroy, it destroy you and destroy your, your cultural, uh, your culture. History should be emphasized in education over everything else, including literature and art and music, because history is the arena in which God works. God began history in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of the heavens and the earth. And God has worked in history. He has moved in history. He has uh, transformed history. And history gives us the evidence of the truth of God's, God's word. And so this generation that comes along and forgets the great works of the Lord and ignores and disdains um, what God had done uh, are destroying themselves. And that is where, where we are because we now live in the era of critical social justice and cancel culture where they are going around and we're letting them tear down statues and we're uh, doing all kinds of things. And even most conservatives don't understand why it's important to have these statues of, of people that may not have been the best. There were uh, some who were in the South who were not the best representatives, but they represent our history. And they are monuments to our history and to the fact that we rose above uh, slavery. And the reason we rose above slavery was not due to the fact that that uh, we just recognized its evil, it came from Christianity. It came from white, heterosexual, evangelical Christians, men who operated in Parliament in England and in Congress here, here because there were other issues where the Bible was mis- uh, interpreted by slave owners and theologians in the South, it led to a war that did not occur in England, and that is because the movement that was so heavily in, that was so heavily important in England was was energized by solid evangelicals, whereas you had a mix here in the U.S. You had transcendentalists who were not Christians up, up in New England, who were abolitionists. And you had radical flakes like um, Charles Finney, who many evangelicals still think he's a great evangelist, but he did not believe in substitutionary atonement whatsoever. He believed that, that people are not born spiritually dead. Every person is born uh, just as uh, Adam was created spiritually alive and and neutral he his theology was heretical time and time again and he was a post millennialist he believed that man could if man was not a corrupt sinner then he's perfectible on his own through works and if one man is perfectible on his own through works then a whole culture and civilization are perfectible alone on the basis of works so let's go out there and uh, destroy slavery that's why we had a civil war here, because of the arrogance of the transcendentalists and the arrogance of the Finneyites. They didn't have that in England, so there was no civil war. You had men working through the halls of parliament for 
couple of decades, men like Wilberforce and Granville Sharp and numerous others who finally got a law passed to end the uh, slave trade and then later to end slavery in England. But if it weren't for Christians, whatever the stripe, we would still have slavery today, just as most of the rest of the world continued in slavery, whether they were Buddhist or Hindus or whether they were uh, Muslims in Africa, they all continued slavery. The, 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 the black tribes, one against the other, when they would conquer one, they would capture them and sell them as slaves to the Arabs. But what I've just told you marks me as just a horrible racist because um, it, it doesn't put the blame on the white people. And I'm not saying white people are blameless, but they're not the only ones. Everybody else was involved. And if it weren't for Christianity, it wouldn't have changed. And what we're seeing today in this hostility towards Western, towards Western civilization is just a, a camouflage. What makes Western civilization great wasn't the paganism of the Celts, it wasn't the Druids. It wasn't the Vikings worshiping the Norse gods. It wasn't the Greeks worshiping the gods of Olympus. It was biblical Christianity that came in and transformed Greece and transformed Rome and transformed all of the Goths and Ostrogoths and Visigoths and Lombards and Franks and all of the other pagan tribes that were in Europe at the time and transformed them and that produced Christianity and it took centuries and that led to the ending of slavery in Western Europe and in the North American continent. But it still goes on. You have white slavery, you have all kinds of other things going on that we just don't even want to think about. Uh, slavery has not ended. It may not be race-based, but it is going on all over the world. And to deny all of what I have said is to deny the reality of what's actually going on so there can be, uh, can be no solution. So this generation of Genesis 3-7 is the generation that forgot God because they were against history. I'm going to end here because I've got probably, oh, 25 more slides and I'm only halfway through my 15 pages of notes. I'm not halfway through yet. So we'll come back and finish this up uh, next time. But we have to understand what is going on today. Without the objectivity that Bible, biblical truth gives us, without the objectivity that God gives us through his revelation, we're left in this muck of subjectivism which just produces chaos. The chaos of last summer and... Um, in Portland and Seattle and in Chicago and so many other cities is not the result of Christianity, it's the result of anti-Christianity. And unless there is a change in this country in relation to Christ, it will not get better. And we need to be prepared for that. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on the implications of Scripture for the way we look at the world and the way we look at our uh, friends and associates, and the way we look to our future. We are here not to have a good time. We're not here to uh, have peace and to accumulate riches, but we are to be laying up 
treasure in heaven and we are to be ambassadors for Christ and we are to be carrying out the mission that you gave us. And Father, we pray that you might give us a a tremendous desire to do that. And now, Father, we just ask that you'd help us to think through what we've covered this evening and have been covering and will cover uh, because this is what is necessary for us to think accurately about reality. And we thank you above all for our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that we have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.